NetSparker, the developers of a comprehensive automated web security platform that includes web vulnerability scanning, assessment, and management. NetSparker's desktop and cloud-based security solutions employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities and provides a proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single, unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Welcome back, everyone, to Security Weekly. Make sure you join the mailing list. Didn't I say this one already, or am I having flashbacks? Securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. For all things Security Weekly, Discord channel, mailing list, and subscribe to all our shows. I'm pretty sure I read that one already, though. Didn't I? Or am I? Anyway. Uh. Alrighty, then. It wasn't even my software that caused that bug that time, either. <laughs> which, is, which is very surprising, because usually it's my software. Um, welcome back, everyone. It's good to be here talking about security news. Uh, where do we want to start? Oh, I know where we can start. Uh, there was a uh, data breach disclosed by the Sands Institute, who we know and love. Yeah, let's get that out of the way. Let's get that out of the way. I, it it's reminded good. me of, of things that like Sands doesn't really like talking about, like Fluffy Bunny. Uh, it was like way back in the day when their, their website Fluffy got, Bunny! It got hacked, right? And now, I mean, they were victims of phishing attack. I mean, who hasn't been? The victim of a phishing attack in some capacity. Apparently, twenty-eight thousand records were leaked, but it really is information that you could find in the phone book or on like True People Search pretty easily. In the what? Yeah, the phone book that we call True People Search. Yeah, but it sounds really cool to be able to say or to be able to report on. Sands was breached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I picked up on that pretty quickly. Did you get yeah, that see, too? I, I mean, because like they get picked up in a lot of mainstream-ish news, I mean, mainstream for security kind of news outlets that were, looked like they were just really sensationalizing it. And like, I, it, to me, yep. it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. No, that's well, it. Yeah, I think yeah, the, a bunch of the, the news outlets made a big deal out of it when, in fact, it was, it was a big deal. There was a breach. It happened. Now, the information that was disclosed, it may have, much of it may have been publicly available. But I think Sands did the right thing in saying, we had a problem. There was some information that was leaked from us that may have been aggregated from other sources and be available publicly. But I think they did the right thing. That's what? a great I mean, point, Larry, because um, you know everybody's going to get breached sooner or later, one day or the other, and it's how you deal deal with it, how right. you respond to it, it is as important if not more important than trying to prevent the breach in the first place what i like too is they're like you know our, our forensics experts are going to look into that and sans forensics experts taught most of the forensics experts that were out there in class in some point in time it's a really high degree of confidence that they're going to uncover exactly you know what happened as well oh, and they did and in fact while we were on the show on, yeah. on the interview part uh sans posted a defer blog entry that mm -hmm. uh included significantly more details including all of the iocs there mm -hmm. you go and it's linked in the show notes rob lee is still the uh sans fellow instructor leading the uh forensics uh track? i know he was no, for some time he 
I think I'm not sure, but uh, Rob's role has changed. Okay. Uh, he's more along the lines of the curriculum lead for mm-hmm. um, you know, for both Pentest and Defer. So he's he's quite high up in the uh, the gotcha. organization. So he's been yep. teaching forensics for like since the beginning of time, basically. Yeah, he, yeah like back in what ninety three or nine? No, not ninety three. Two thousand three, two thousand four. When I was taking my first SANS classes, I actually took my uh, what was called track three mm-hmm. now uh um uh 503 um from rob right as my instructor yep i want to say doug white who's done a lot in forensics as well also said rob was one of his instructors like back in the day so yeah mm-hmm. and, and, and again and that's what it's all about it, something happened you disclose it you do the uh, research and uh, investigation, and you make it available to the public. That's now having having said all that, and Larry, I haven't seen what what they posted. I don't know if you've looked at it. You know, was it was it negligence? Was it you know ha- could happen to anybody? Did they let their guard down? Get ca- you know, can you summarize? Um, I it was not negligence to to the okay. best of my knowledge. Um. It does to me look like uh, so. It was it was fishing. No, no, no yeah. word of a lie of fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a well crafted fishing. Um, for the, the fish, uh, about um, uh, bonuses uh, with yeah. an attempt like mm-hmm. an attachment click here, which installed a malicious uh, uh, add-on for that user's O365 environment, which created email forwarding based on a certain type of list gotcha so it's more in the category of it could happen to anybody because sooner or later somebody's going to come up with a phishing email that is you know for whatever reason uh, you know too too looks too innocuous is too normal and i and i'm glad i'm glad it's that and and i'll share with you you know my company uh, subscribes to a service from a company who, whom I will not name, uh, and and you know we get the periodic phishing you know attempts and we're supposed to report it and all that, and it, it happened to me a couple weeks ago. I got an I, I got a notice about a UPS shipment, and I'm like, UPS shipment? What the hell are they sending me? Click, bah! You're, you're you've gotten. And then I was supposed to take remedial training, which I refuse to do. I have yet to get in trouble for that. But I think they eventually sent me a, they sent me a follow up phishing attempt, and I don't know if that's their way of saying has he learned his lesson. Right. But this time, this time it was an Amazon Prime shipment link, and I'm like, aha, fool me once. Yeah. <laughs> All that to say is, it can happen to anybody. It can. Yeah, you I, know what's interesting it, too? I was uh, interviewing Masha Sadova <laughs> from uh, Elevate Security. And they actually did a study about which users are more likely to click on a phishing email and and measure different things uh, in in that aspect. And she said Mm -hmm. her research proved that newer employees, I forget if it was like six months on average, are more likely to click on a phishing email. Um, You know, her kind of uh, theory on that uh, in, in speculation was that they don't know, newer users don't necessarily know what's normal and what isn't because right. they haven't been at the company long enough to observe enough email to kind of get a gauge for like what's normal and I get those all the time versus, you know, what might be an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I was kind of like, well, you know, also when you're new to the company, like you want to make sure that you click on everything and read every email because you're new and you want to, you know, make sure you're doing your due diligence. And you may not know like what you can wait and what can't. You want to make sure everything gets done. Um, it, it was kind of my kind of theory on that as well. She also said that uh, employees that had been there, I want to say 14 years or longer. As I was going to say, the other end of the bell yeah. curve has got to be old-time employees. And that's exactly what it was, Jeff. It's older yep. employees. Yep. And we kind of speculated uh, kind of humorously that, like, maybe they just they don't care anymore. Or I, I don't know. They've gotten complacent. <laughs> They've gotten complacent. They're like, ah, whatever. What's the worst that could happen? Maybe in the 14 years working there, they've clicked on a bunch of links and email and nothing bad has happened. So, you know, why not? But yeah. yeah. And, and speaking yeah. from my interactions with folks at SANS, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is, and I don't purport to speak for them in any stretch of the imagination, I'm a subcontractor for right, them, right. so I don't know what any of their internal stuff is. But based on my interactions, when I've said, hey, I can email you this file, or I can get you this thing in this way, uh, and the answer was uh, either no, I can't do that, uh, because, uh, Larry, I know you, but I don't trust you, mm-hmm. Um or we can do it in this other manner or hold on a second let me get my other system or they eat their own dog food i mean their non-technical staff would appear to have gone through some of the same training that they offer to their customers agreed that's always Uh, been my mm -hmm. uh experience with sans uh as well that for non-security non-technical people that worked for sans are extremely alert and aware of the threats that are out there Right, and it yep. more so the longer that they work there as well, right? Which kind of makes me speculate. It might have been a newer employee that may have had the base level of training, but the more the SANS employee uh, employees hang out with the SANS instructors and <coughs> students, the more they learn by osmosis. Because you know what, mm-hmm. Security mm-hmm. Weekly is the same way, dude. <laughs> it's the same way. The reason why the staff that's here is resilient because through osmosis and hanging out with all of us and hearing all our shows on in the background all day long, uh, you know, they learn things about security. It's it's it, it's sinking in. Mm. Did you know uh, about the same time they had the SANS data breach that there was also a data breach of an old server at ProctorU, which relates to SANS because they're using them for their virtual proctors for their certification tests. It was data from 2014 before SANS was even involved, but it was almost a, like a one-two punch because of the timing. Hmm. Interesting. It, oh, I meant to tell you guys, I just got 16 new certs. <laughs> Those were all proctored. As well, they're all proctored exams, and I I aced them, aced all of them. So I mean, you want to be careful with those proctor exams. You really only have to do them every few, every once a year. Proct- Anything that begins with proc, <laughs> proc, you want to be careful with. Right? Yes, especially the ology. <laughs> yes, once yep. and make sure that both hands are not on your shoulder. Very important. Very important. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I think we sort of beat the sands one to death but uh and when people were sending me that that you know that note it was or or those stories in various formats it was you know clearly it can happen to anyone um i'd also argue that yeah absolutely it can happen to anyone uh because we saw uh also the same day um the ncc group um had its training data leaked online uh, with a bunch of Crest pen test certification exam notes posted to GitHub. So basically, all of the oh. answers to the Crest pen test cert was leaked online that they had had um, compromised. 
So Ow. it can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone, but that doesn't. I'm not threatened by that because you can't fake being able to pen test. You might have a cert in your hand, but mm. what's that going to buy you at the end of the day other than maybe getting hired for a time? I mean, a I mean uh, Jeff, it's a great point. Uh, you can you can fake your way through training and certification in various levels, but at the end of the day, when you get a job and you have to do it for real, like then what are you going to do? Right. If you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. There are stories of like other people getting like doing their jobs through proxy and it was like someone else doing their job for them. I want to say we cover that on like business security weekly or something. I guess we did a while while back that some, uh, was it uh, either Google or Amazon security engineers set up a webcam so that they, the webcam could see the, uh, the RSA token and he outsourced his job to like India. Yes. I guess what it was. That's the one. Yep. That's the one. Yeah. And and we saw that years ago. Like Paul, I think we were still in your basement. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting. Like you can try and lie your way through life and your career but like eventually you're gonna get caught right like and that's why we cover these stories right because like, you got caught yeah. right right i mean we hired a gal back in 2004 her resume looked great except she had short experiences on job it turns out what she did is she bluffed her way into the job and worked it in about 18 months she had to start looking for the next job because she knew the hammer was going to fall because the gig would be up but she right. had enough enough moxie to cover two years worth of faking the job it's kind of sad that we didn't catch it on the screening. But yeah, it's, I've been, it's I've hard. Been faking it for like thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 Lee, now all she needs to do is get a job in social engineering because clearly, if you she went in for the long game, well, right? Yeah, I mean, if if if, if, really, if yeah, I, that'd be a great career for her to now. And back then, that really wasn't as much of a thing. But oh my God, yes, she'd be killer at it. Ah, uh, yep. where do we want to go next? So I. I May I? Yes, please. Oh. Uh, it is uh, Lee's story number five. CISA chief wants younger, more experienced hackers in federal government. Uh-huh. Uh, this caught my eye mostly because uh, yesterday, not Tuesday, on Security and Compliance Weekly, we interviewed a, a woman named Jeanette Manfra, who, when I met her, was the she had the god awful long title but basically she was like the associate director for cybersecurity for CISA or DHS or something but now she works at Google um so CISA caught my eye but you know one of the things we talked talked with Jeanette about is sort of the difference between working for the government working for DHS CISA CISA gif gif i don't know how you say it uh versus the private sector and uh you know we didn't really bring it up on the air but you know i i left government many years ago one of the big reasons i left government was because i walked out the door and got like a 30 percent raise and, mm-hmm. and within and within mm-hmm. like two years i doubled my salary um you know not to you know not that that means anything but how does the federal government attract the best and brightest when they don't pay well and, and that's but what yeah, this article seems great, to be touching on a little bit but that's a great point too uh, salary uh, for me throughout my career has been one data point. And I mean, let's mm-hmm. be frank, it's not an unimportant data point, right? It's a very right. important data point uh, in, in your career. But, you know, there's obviously other aspects of your job and your career uh, that are also very important. Uh, you know, your quality of life and 
uh, the ability to learn and feel useful at your job, right? But, I mean, let's mm-hmm. be frank, salary is very important. However, there's kind of this this point in this scale, and I think it's why myself and, and many of us on the call and perhaps listening, right, have made moves in their career because when you realize that you can increase your salary by more than 40%, right, or 50%, or double your salary, or whatever it is, that's a huge incentive, right? When you start looking at like, well, yeah, I could make maybe 10, 20, eh, 25, almost 30% more, those other factors are still pretty heavy in your decision, right? When you realize you can almost double your salary or increase it by 50%, it's really hard to keep someone, in this example, in a government job, doing security right that salary right. incentive is just i mean let's be doubling your salary is uh, just a, a huge thing for improvement of not having a lot of shit to worry about that you maybe had to worry about when you're making half as much right so right. I, I, you can't really fault people when it's i can double my salary by moving from government to private sector right and i think that's really yeah, where I, I, the government I, has I think, to catch up yeah I, and I think it also has the effect of not just moving from the government to private sector, but even looking at the government to go into as a first career to Agreed. begin with. Agreed. Because right there's that parity yeah. gap right at the beginning. Um, right. I mean, it's the difference said, between I, I can pay off my car and buy a house or not. Right. right. <laughs> That's uh, really, the, the, those are the big other, things. Yeah. The other one, too, I, I know folks that have gone that route. And they ha- were willing to take mm. uh, that known, quote, salary cut right out of the gate or even change jobs to go into that uh, because they felt very passionate about serving their country, as it were. I yep. mean, they weren't Absolutely. serving in a branch of the military, Agreed. but they yeah. felt that they were doing the right thing by providing that service for their country. And and that's a, that's a really noble idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, I think that's I'll one say of- this. Well, go ahead, Tyler. I was gonna say I think that's one of the the biggest motivating factors for maybe some of the people that have been in this for a while, right? Like you've uh, once you've done this career for a while, you've worked for great companies, uh, you've kind of seen a lot that you've you've done and, and helped with. Really, it comes down to you know how do you contribute to the world overall? Uh, doing the same kind of job and not seeing a lot of change all the time. Uh, or helping with kind of the same problems across multiple companies, um, getting behind a, a different mission or a different type of, you know, from a consulting standpoint, I've been doing this almost 20 years of consulting, uh, getting behind a different mission where money is not the motivator or money is not the client anymore. Yeah, Tyler, you still don't look that. You still don't look that old enough to be doing it 20 years. Just saying, that's a compliment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And before your camera said it was too hot, and I wasn't sure if that was your camera or you, but <laughs> it's Tyler. In either case, yeah. when you're hot, you're hot. You're still young hotter and naive, sweat- as far as I'm concerned. Hotter than Shakira's sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, in uh, that article, it, it 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 does in fact say that the GS schedule is from 1929. Um, mm. So it's a yeah. They actually came up with a sliding scale. I can't remember what it's called, but. I mean, I looked at some some strictly federal jobs a few years ago um, that were a considerable advance in 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 position, but I was already making more than that, and I did not apply for them. Mm. So I I think I'm the only one that's more or less started in government and came out that's on on the air right now. I think so. So let me say this, since I have some experience in this. Uh, 
you know, when I was at NSA in particular, there were a lot of really smart people. There were a lot of people that were, you know, comfortable in having a, a, a steady job. Um, the, the people that I've become reacquainted with over the last couple of years that are people that I worked with even, you know, way back then, I was on the phone with, uh, uh, a couple people that I used to work with just a, a week or so ago. They, they now work for, uh, CIS, um, sort of semi-retirement, you know, type of position. But, um, and I don't want to name names and I don't want to disparage anybody, but there were people that, you know, when I was at NSA, NSA was trying to grow through attrition. I mean, I was literally hired in a group of 100 people. They were hiring 100 people a week mm -hmm. when I started working at NSA. And this was in the uh, middle of the Reagan administration where they were trying to outspend the Soviet Union to bank, you know, essentially bankrupt them, which is how we ended up winning the Cold War. Long story, I'm I, paraphrasing. I, I thought it was the Civil War, but anyway, continue. Yeah, Span <laughs> it was the Spanish Civil War. Give me a little bit. Spanish American um, War? Yeah, Spanish American. But um bastard. <laughs> I haven't had I a good it. old I, I haven't had a good old person joke in a while. Uh, Jack Daniel hasn't been on the show yeah. in years, so I I feel, I, I, I feel I play the role. What was I Shout talking Jack. about? I think it's time for me to go to bed and take my Metamucil. Um <laughs> Do you need to talk the, to your sock puppet though? There was certainly dead weight that I would consider people that were like comfortable to have, you know, have a sure. government job, steady employment. I mean, and when frankly, you reach any size organization, Jeff, you're going to find that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I had a couple things working for and against me. One was, you know, they had accelerated pay scales at NSA for what they called critical skills, which at yes. the time were engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists. I was neither. So I was brought in on the regular pay scale, and not only were those people uh, getting accelerated pay, but they also were first in line for all the extra benefits, like getting paid to go to grad school and 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 getting all the different opportunities for diversity tours, which would get get you the professionalization, which was a. Um, sort of the certification rubber stamp that you needed to get into the higher grades that that was the way it worked back then um so i had that working against me um but there were and, and you know 100 people a week they were hoping to keep maybe 10 mm. uh and and they were bringing in mostly engineers mathematicians right. computer scientists and almost immediately sending them off to school to get their graduate degrees but the the agreement was you had to match your time of service. You know, if they if they sent you to school for two years, you had to give two years of government service. You know, in order to not have to pay them back. Except the clock was running at the same time. Yeah, they they figured it out eventually. But there were so many people that were coming right out of college, getting the job at NSA, getting paid. 30, 20, 30 percent extra than the, the regular stiff like me that went to work there, getting first in line to get the graduate degree, getting paid to do it, getting paid while they were doing it. And and like a month after they got their degree, they were eligible to leave and go on and to the greener pastures and so on and so forth. So it was a screwed up system. Uh, but that's that's the way it was. I mean, the it sounds like it could also have done wonders for the U.S. economy if they went on to build commercial companies, right? 
Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but most of them were going off and getting jobs. And this was, you know, when I started there, outsourcing wasn't really a thing, but that yep. was becoming a not thing. Every, not every home had a TV. Yeah, we get, we get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, flush toilets or uh, refrigerators. Electricity. Electricity. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, Wait, hold on. Tyler's back. I just have to digress for a moment. Did you go get more snacks? Because you started off. What's the cheese that comes in the, the plastic, red plastic? What is that called? The best cheese. It's the only cheese. I don't know what it's called. Actually. I, I forget what that's called. And then I saw you had some kind of energy bar, some kind of protein bar, and then Doritos. There was that Doritos. What kind of Doritos? Those were those were regular Doritos. Those look good. Hot, spicy. What is that? They're the dynamite ones. Dynamite, dynamite. Doritos. And what did you dynamite. wash that down with? Was that another kind of protein shake, or what? What? What, what was that? It was a Recovery Rockstar. Recovery Rockstar. I just for our younger audience, think getting into information security. Don't take Tyler's dieting tips. No, <laughs> don't worry. They already are. Tyler probably learned it from them. Right. Yeah. So my long-winded point is people that stayed. Some stayed just because they weren't going to get a job somewhere else. Right. I was, I was, I was looking to leave before I was encouraged to leave, and you've heard that story mm-hmm. before, and somewhat. But you know what? What really did it for me was they changed the rules at some point. Uh, they went through periods of downsizing where they were paying people to leave, and um, the, you know incentivizing you to leave. And originally they did it for anybody. Then they figured out all their critical skills were leaving. And so they changed the rules and said, if you're a critical skill, you're, you're not eligible. And in the time that I was there, I had gone and gotten a second degree mm-hmm. uh, in computer science. I was doing the whole, you know, red teaming thing, getting into computer security, internet security, but they'd never updated my job code. So on paper, I was still eligible to get paid to leave. So when the shit, when the, the when the shit hit the fan, I was able to walk out the door and get paid to go out and get that job that mm. paid me, you know, 30, 30% more. Mm. The people I know that have stayed there and, and, and some that are still there that I, that I know brilliant people and they absolutely do it because of the patriotism and the giving back. And I'll also mm-hmm. say there's a certain element of, in terms of lifestyle, um, you know, it's a nine to five job mostly because you don't, you really don't take your home, your work home with right. you. You can't. And there's right. something yeah. to be said for that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, having access to labs where you've got every, you know, any any tool and right. product that's out there, you get a copy of. It. You know, I mean, it it it's the Toys R Us of the technology mm-hmm. world, the labs that they have there. So you know, there's there's something to be said for the lifestyle. And you and, know, and Converse. Uh, some of the things that I, I've heard from our industry and DEFCON and, and those folks that the lifestyle is also reasons why many of the people we know haven't gone that route and it has nothing to do with money. Uh, it has to be with the consumption of federally banned su- or federally illegal substances that may be legal on a state level that these folks partake in and would v- validate their uh, ability to have these jobs. Either to get them or, or to keep them. Absolutely. Or even paint the security security clearances and you know lifestyles, polys, all of the things that you have to do in order to maintain a lot of the the clearance level stuff is you know that's a lot for some people. Oh. 
Well, don't forget you're giving up some of your civil rights, too. There's that, too. I mean, there's lots of things that go into the lifestyle decision. Um, I, I, I think while those are valid and they're all very real, I think, at least from my perspective, more than anything, it was the the hunger to be able to j- react and do things more quickly and not get mired in the bureaucracy. Mm. You know, I, I, t- I talked about, uh, it, it, you know, when you interviewed me, more tales from the crypt, um, you know, literally when we were first trying to negotiate doing penetration testing and, and, and doing it right and doing it legal, uh, meaning involving the, the general counsel and the lawyers, they came back and said, before you can issue a ping command, you need to get written permission from all levels of management, which was a paper process that took weeks to accomplish. That that kind of stuff didn't, you know, that's an extreme example, but that's the kind of lifestyle change that I was looking for, where I went out into the private sector, I would get hired by a company, we would go in and do a red team assessment, vulnerability assessment, whatever you want to call it, we would tell them what was wrong, we would help them figure out what they needed to do right, we'd spend a couple weeks a month, um, they'd thank us for it, and we were done, boom, boom, that's not how it works in the government. You know, that you have to have all sorts of hands touching it, and it has to go through all sorts of procedure. And what should only take a few minutes takes months. That's the lifestyle that I couldn't cope with. But that's mm-hmm. that's my personal decision. Other people, I mean, I couldn't imagine being an accountant. No offense to accountants. That, that kind of work would drive me crazy. I have friends that are accountants. They love it. Sam is amazing as an accountant. Not my cup of tea. Mm. You know, right. so it's that lifestyle thing. Um, there was something in the in the article about you know we just need to hire a bunch of teenagers and and, and you know literally our our deputy director at the time when he was like when they were finally figuring out NSA needed to do things in terms of internet cyber you know we didn't call it cyber back then you know his his quote was all we need is a bunch of those uh, you know thirty or forty of those young long haired you know hacker types and we'll be great. So I, I'm not sure I buy that mentality from this article, but more power oh. to him. I, I did want to transition to another article um, sure. that I think is sure. particularly interesting. Amazon Alexa one-click attack can divulge personal data. I don't know if you guys read this article. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. I have a stupid question about it, but go on. Uh, for a lot of reasons. So uh, certificate pinning that bypasses the mechanism for protecting traffic. They were to view traffic transmitted between the app and an Echo device. From there, several requests made by the app had misconfigured cores policy. So it sounds like certificate pinning was just a method for them to bypass security controls to conduct their research. The cores uh, policy, which uh, cross-origin resource sharing, uh, allows resources on a certain uh, allowing resources on a certain allowed web pages to be requested outside the domain when misconfigured. This can be bypassed. However, the misconfiguration could allow attackers to send specific AJAX requests from any other Amazon subdomain. And it doesn't sp- specifically say this in the article, but that means I spin up a resource in Amazon's cloud and I'm on an Amazon subdomain. Is kind of the way that I read it. Uh, then that vulnerability could allow attackers to, with code injection capabilities on one Amazon subdomain, to perform a cross-domain attack on another Amazon subdomain. So basically, I spin up a resource in Amazon, I get you to click on a link, 
that allows me to read all of the apps that you have installed on your Amazon Alexa device. Tyler, I don't know, this sounds like something you've talked about recently uh, if you've read through this attack and if I'm describing it correctly. I'm reading through it right now. That's very interesting. Certificate pinning is one of the few ways that, you know, any of these apps actually survive because of how poorly some of them are written. Mm. And so, like, I'm trying to read through and parse some of the technical pieces of this one. I'm, I'm curious how the where the one-click plays into this. Like, isn't Amazon or isn't Alexa something you talk to? <laughs> so it says uh, a bad actor would first convince an Alexa user to click on a malicious link directs them to Amazon, directs them to Amazon where the attack has code injection capabilities from the core's oh, vulnerability. On the Alexa app on the phone. Okay, okay. Right. From there, the attacker could get a list of installed apps, which wasn't all that interesting, installed, and the user's token, which that's interesting. Does that mean with the user's token, do I get them to... One click is deceiving, I agree, because, like, is the next link I click on after I get the... Uh, token, I make them click on another link and with their token I can get them to install an app silently in the background and their Alexa, that's where I would go as an attacker obviously, right? Yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking, that or with the token, you essentially have the ability to gain certain permissions that that token has in order for you to leverage that with uh, another app potentially or... Right, can uh, I make requests to the Alexa, Alexa, Alexa API with that token and interact with authentication to the Alexa API on behalf of that user, which means I could install apps without even asking them to click on anything. Yeah, right. and the, the I mean the Alexa API and just the skills in general mm, is uh, a hot mess. Been, it's we've always been digging into that for a long time. It's it's a it's a dark hole. Yep. There's a substantial amount of like just smoke and mirrors, and there's a substantial amount of like um, I would call it segregation that doesn't make a ton of sense yet. So it doesn't surprise me that someone's found a way to abuse this a little bit, but. This one doesn't seem all that interesting, quite honestly. No, because I, I don't think you can install even a skill that would listen all the time, unless you were to bypass further protections, right, from the way Correct. I have understood yeah. it. They, they put that in a long time ago, right? You remember the very first version of that, They with the solder thing, you can right. put like an always listening header yep. off of that and use a mic. Since then, there's been very strict permissions and sandboxing around certain permission or uh, right access for certain pieces of hardware, right. and that's one of them. So now I'm, the I'm other speculation, what... though, is that these devices, along with Google devices, are always listening because we've all heard the. It, it, is there research out there that definitely proves this? Because like you'll be in conversation and talking about buying a new you know smoker to do barbecue and all of a sudden you start seeing ads for that but you haven't searched for it yet you've only said it verbally right which means no, there's, there's definitely uh there's been recent uh releases of a few examples that that went public but there's a lot of like private stuff that has been researched or disclosed and yeah they're always listening in fact you can there's even some court always. cases that are cleverly hidden that uh, where you where they've used it in court cases. So mm. yeah, there's there's information there that's always recorded by the provider, but they put sandboxing and protections around a user or developer making an app to do the same thing. I so, actually got a notice from Google in the last week or so saying, "Hey, you know, we know we I'm paraphrasing grossly, you know, we're recording everything, but you can change the settings, log into your Google account, and, and modify it." Um, and I haven't done anything yet because 
for all I know, it's clickbait and it's a phishing attack. But could be. But uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I I somebody in the room with me was talking about something. I won't say what it was. Uh, just in the last week or two, uh, some of my family and I started getting the ads mm -hmm. for what they had been talking about. Drives me crazy. And, and, and I'm, one... I'm almost okay with that if the user has control, like you said, Jeff. And I, I would hope mm -hmm. that threat of class action lawsuit and things like that, which, by the way, drives a lot of policies on the YouTube side, gives the user that capability. I wonder if I kept the notice. I might have deleted it. The notice had something to do with uh, being able to ha being able to delete the the recordings or how long they were going to keep it or retain oh, it or something like yeah. that. It it was kind of weird. I should have paid more attention to it, but I was busy doing day jobs. I want the opt out. That's what I want. Yep. Yep. See, but that's well, it's like the, Twitter. That's the I've been getting it. Of... Sorry, Tyler. Go ahead. You're good. I mean, all of, all of these devices are subsidized, and and the income that these companies make like google amazon mm. most of their revenue is generated in fact almost a good portion of their revenue is generated from the advertising data that they're either selling or provisioning out to other companies it's a great so point tyler because like i when i buy stuff on so i bought my wife a new laptop right it happened to be a google chromebook and all of a sudden like this new google home device showed up because i got one of those free when i bought the laptop and, like, I already have a bunch of these, so I switched from the Amazon devices to the Google devices, but privacy-wise, they all seem to be the same, which is really not cool with me. But speaks to the, your narrative you, of they subsidize yeah, them you, because they're monetizing based on the advertising revenue. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you get by that, though? Like, we are provided the internet or a search engine uh, by subsidizing that information. We're provided cheaper hardware on our phones by subsidizing that, an OS. And, you know, even the telemetry data that Microsoft collects, which they keep very private and internal. But still, from there, what are they doing with that? It's not yeah. sold, but they use it internally very, very extensively. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a – there's not a ton that you can do. The, the uh, stuff in, in the EU – that has done some of the privacy uh, lobbying has helped a little bit, but honestly, that's just allowing you to see what they collect, kind of. Right. And that doesn't even that doesn't you know go out to the advertising company. So this is. But it's a hard from a. Get it's hard from a use, usability perspective when you're the user and you want to be able to voice control the stuff in your home, and that that to me is not just cool, but like actually really awesome in the house. But now our only options are to use a commercial company because the commercial companies can afford the research and development to make a natural language interpretation AI engine. And to offload that to the cloud. Right? Yes. So they're offloading right? to the cloud for interpretation. And so you need an Amazon or a Google or an Apple to create that. But now you're also like in the world of commercial corporations have taken over like Blade Runner and countless other science fiction movies have predicted, like, I feel like we're already there in a lot of aspects, <laughs> right? Very true. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I keep getting a notice from Twitter that they uh, are doing something with ads. They want to tailor ads to me. So they want me to click and either say, keep the default ads or personalize the ads. Mm -hmm. And I just keep, I, and I've been doing this for weeks, I just keep reloading the page and it goes away for a while. Because I don't want to give them any more information about you. of what yeah. my interests are right um and, and i don't i don't know if they're gonna you know ever give up and and stop trying to get me to do that but i i can win 
I will right? outlast them. I already have a 55-gallon drum of lube. I don't need to see the Amazon <laughs> advertisement for it. That's right. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to mention that, that's kind of interesting is I, I have a, a customer right now that's an e-commerce customer. So I'm looking at their website. And in the world of PCI, you can do the, the short-form very lightweight uh, compliance if you basically you outsource everything, especially your payment page, to a third party that's PCI compliant. And that's what a lot of small merchants do. But I was looking at their website and I was looking at the page source code because I was trying to figure out uh, if and when they're redirecting to a third party in terms of the you know the the flow of their website, especially the their shopping cart and and the you know proceed to checkout type of thing. What I was seeing, which I, I you know would love to dig into someday, but I'm lazy. I'd rather ask other people that do website assessments about it. There were all sort of all sorts of links to Twitter, Google, Facebook. Amazon and I'm like holy crap they're they're collecting all sorts of data on these people and and it's all built into this website and do they even know about it that that kind of I I I know that I know that that happens but I'd never seen it like in the source code before and it was kind of freaking me out a little bit it's like oh my god you know where where do we go with that because people are just clicking through and and they're collecting all this data and everybody's fat dumb and happy because they get a coupon or they get a discount or they get the targeted ads that that we've been talking about um i just i want to transition to like vulnerabilities i feel like in software that we've been talking about probably for 15 years or more um adobe being the shining example of that uh new uh, twenty six <laughs> vulnerabilities, eleven which are deemed critical. critical. I, and I, I really, I hesitate to make the recommendation that you shouldn't not you should not run software like based on the reputation of vulnerabilities because all software does have have vulnerabilities. However, Adobe, let's just pick on Adobe Reader for as an example, like just the sheer number of vulnerabilities. And, and again, you can look at this data in a lot of different ways and say, well, Adobe Reader is really popular, therefore it's under a lot more scrutiny than maybe other PDF readers or other software that's not as popular. Therefore, we're uncovering more vulnerabilities. You can also look at the nature of software and say software such as a PDF reader that is parsing structured and to a certain extent unstructured data uh, from the user or, or from a, a source is also going to be vulnerable because usually parsing things is what leads to a lot of different vulnerabilities. But again, if you look at the data and the sheer number of vulnerabilities coupled with the criticality in something like Adobe Reader, it kind of falls on my list of like stuff you should just never run and allow on any of your uh, systems, especially in the enterprise. I would put... Uh, vBulletin and forum software in the similar kind of category. Also kind of processing unstructured data accepted by the user in the, the uh, forum. In, in, in earlier days in the show, we talk a lot about forum vulnerabilities because those were the days yeah. before Reddit, before Discord, and b mm -hmm. before all these much better mechanisms um, to have a cloud hosted with, uh, in Slack, but which also makes me now question security of slack and discord and, and reddit right because they are essentially forum and or chat type software but uh vbulletin has had a, a pretty poor history uh of vulnerabilities uh 
I know. Let, let, let me stop there before I move on to Team Viewer because I think that might be a different discussion. So, like, mm -hmm. Vbullen and Adobe are probably pretty high up if you were to go back through our entire archive. And there's actually AI engines that do this. Uh, they can go back through our entire archive of audio for all of our shows since the beginning of time uh, and start pointing out trends and do the transcription of it. You would find yeah. us saying the words Adobe in Vbullen probably quite a bit. <laughs> Especially Adobe. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Adobe PDF, we've kind of gotten to the point, right, like where Office has had this, we'll call it the last three to five years of uh, the preferred infection vector or, you know, macros, VBScript, DDE, all of the infections were coming through, you know, Office products. They've gotten better. There's a lot of protections with, uh, with Office products and where they've came. And PDFs have kind of gotten left alone and been the, you know, the trusted source for receiving information that can't be changed. Well, anybody that knows PDF knows that's not really true, but a lot of that is contingent upon the reader or interpreter uh, that opens the PDF. And with Adobe being the prevalent one that a lot of people use, um, I see this as pretty critical because even though there's auto-updating and stuff happening, uh, I would say that's one of the the few commercial pieces of software that we tend to see such a wide range of versioning numbers, even when they're controlled uh, with some endpoint management stuff. Uh, for whatever reason, the PDF manager is seems to be left alone and is usually the one that ends up getting popped, especially Adobe. Well, it's interesting, too, to that point. Someone was telling me about, um, like, WinZip or P PKZip or one of the compression tools installs the new version but leaves the old version behind and it makes vulnerability management and i can speak to this very much firsthand extremely difficult because oh the latest version is there and it's patched but my vulnerability scanners still tell me that it's vulnerable and that's because there's another copy of it that is on the system that is vulnerable right and that situation comes up more often than not and still uh to this day which is kind of interesting and the, the, other, the other one, too, that, Paul, that I would find many times with uh, with scanning tools like that is that they could detect the presence, but they weren't able to detect the version. Yep. So they would have to alert on all the potential uh, issues with any version. Yeah. And if there's multiple users on the system and all of the users have installed different versions, now you're right. in the same, basically the same boat. Yeah. Right. Well, that's actually the question of about what do you want to install in user space versus system space because mm -hmm. you can right you can't manage user space centrally typically you can only manage system space so it's a, it's a challenge um i'm i'm looking forward to the end of this year when adobe depre finally deprecates flash because so many of those adobe issues were flash related um i mean yeah, my well, fear was originally a cool idea, but it certainly went downhill from that. Yeah, but my fear though is there what happens to the sites that still do require flash and allow and now forces users to do the workaround. Like there's going to reach a day where all of a sudden the browser that you're using is just not going to render flash content at all. And what the user's going to do, and I totally believe attackers are going to take advantage of this is one of two things, right? Maybe both. They're going to go find a previous version of the browser that does support Flash, and they're going to install that, and it's never right. going to be updated, right? Because it's yeah. just, they're just going to pin themselves to that version. Or they're going to go find an alternative browser and or plugin that is going to render Flash content that's still going to be vulnerable. In either case, mm -hmm. I still think there's going to be a fairly hefty user population out there that is going to use and go to sites that require a flash, they're going to circumvent 
in an attempt to circumvent all kinds of security controls because they want to go to the site that renders the Flash content. <clears throat> okay, poor. And that, at the end of the day, honestly, <laughs> with all that Flash, there's there's always JavaScript to fall back on. Everything uses JavaScript. Now, all the modern websites use JavaScript. The browser uses JavaScript. And what is a lot of good malicious code being written in for hooking browsers and injecting code? JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So do we really need Flash anymore? No. I We absolutely do not, as users, should not require Flash. However, there are sites that are still being implemented in Flash today that users are going to go to, and that's what's going to force them down all these nasty vulnerability it's very similar to i want to jailbreak my phone to get this thing that i want to do because if i don't jailbreak my phone the security protections prevent me from doing that and therefore i have to circumvent them right, right. i mean how and, else and you some... do the monitoring right all the monitoring on all the 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 uh, good mdms for like uh monitoring your child protecting the iphone uh, restricting apps with time restrictions you know, Apple's Apple stuff sucks there, and the third-party applications that do do it uh, require jailbreak for most of the functionality that anybody wants to use, and even that has been limited recently with all the updates. So, you know, you're right. There's always got to be a workaround for both uh, malicious activity as well as legitimate activity for monitoring at a lower level. Well, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I've uh, messed around with several of those different monitoring apps, and it's like, oh, yeah, you can monitor text messages – because your goal as a parent may be, you know what? I do want to give my child a phone. I do want them to be able to send text messages. But you know what? I want to be able to monitor it. And it goes, yeah, you can do that, but you got to be Android, right? <laughs> Can't be iOS and do that. Because iOS doesn't let you change your default text messaging app, which is one of the reasons why I use Android, right? But then yep. now there's not as, again, it's that whole balance between control and security which right. mm -hmm. we did our webcast today on uh, with Todd Beardsley on Todd's project to scan the internet and monitor the internet via honeypots and looking at which countries and maybe more vulnerable and have more exposed services. turns out China and the U.S. are pretty much in the top two. And, and, and what, the, what Todd's like, you know, for Todd, his analysis, and I agree with wholeheartedly, is you can have a very much as free and open internet as you want, you can have China, which is very much a very controlled internet in sometimes both directions, depending on what kind of filtering you're talking about. And guess what? They're still just as vulnerable. So the, you know, a, a kind of uh, uh, police state of monitoring and the free and open result in a similar level of security in a lot of these circumstances, which is I, on the phones could be a similar kind of model, right? I'll have to catch the webcast on demand, but is he also mapping the deep and the dark web? Uh, all IPv4 uh, that people have not opted out of. Uh, okay. IPv6, uh, you know, obviously he's not doing active scanning of, um, but his assessment, because this question comes up all the time, right, is mm -hmm. that if you are running IPv6, you know, as uh, Joff was stating in, in previous segments in his own webinars, uh, you're yep. doing some translation to IPv4 at some point, right? He right. does it, it, it now. He doesn't think that there's an entire like sub internet or or dark web that's running on IPv6. Uh, hmm. I, the conspiracy theorist in me, uh, I tend to lean towards if I were an attacker and I wanted to set up a, a dark web on the internet and be basically security through obscurity that actually works, I would do it on IPv6 because mm -hmm. 
I can hide. I could have my own. It, there's so much address space. I could have my own internet on IPv6. That sounds yeah. really. That sounds really complex, though. Well, and there. Yes, there is. I which, agree. Which reminds me of my story number <laughs> three. Uh, report, number three. Go report. Unskilled hackers can breach about three out of four companies. Uh, truth. So we're yeah. back to the seventeen-year-olds. Uh, well, we're back to the truth. fact that so so many companies are breached for stupid stuff that anybody can do, and there isn't a whole lot of uh, highly sophisticated attackers out there. I'm just. They're just they're just looking for the stuff that works that they know how to do. I'm just Not looking things. at the headline and I'm already skeptical. Uh, <laughs> just I'm the not. first the first word unskilled. How would have they measured the skill level of an attacker? Cuz to state well, that in the in early days we would we would call unskilled hackers script kitties, right? But to, I mean even define to me it's not well defined enough to assert the skill level of an attacker to call them either unskilled skilled script kitty or what you would have to prove to me through multiple studies that you're able to measure the skill level of an attacker and i want to know how you're doing that and in, in Larry tyler how often are you having to come up with a, an o-day on the spot versus you've got something in your bag of tricks that just works all but right that's so, the, but that's the security of the company you're targeting not the skill of the attacker Necessarily, that's a, yeah. that's a separate data point. You're, you're splitting hairs. Of course, I am. I, I would I would argue that that is not correct, right? Like, so we'll take three different three different quick examples. One, you've got endpoint uh, detection to get around. Anybody running modern Windows 10, you've got Defender to get around, which is not it's not that hard, but it's still not trivial. They've put a lot of protections in. Windows 10 is a lot better. Uh, most of the ways in which you fish, you have to have some sort of spam. Does bypass. it require skill or having thing. possession of the right tool? So you have to have both. You have to have the knowledge because the tool doesn't do anything for you automatically. I, I can't imagine trying to build any level of half-decent attack without understanding the tool and how to utilize that tool. I mean, setting up just C2 comms and a framework that's not going to get caught by any modern-day firewall and make it outside of you know just general AV is going to take a certain level of at least base knowledge. So yeah, sure. not like ultra-skilled, but I would argue in order to do a successful engagement, a successful targeted attack against any organization, it's going to take a little bit of setup, a little bit of knowledge, and at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to be semi-skilled to carry that out from beginning to end. Yeah, you may land a fish and grab someone's single user creds that gets you their email box, and you might get some data out of that. But I wouldn't consider that a breach or uh, the ownage of a, an organization by any means. Uh, and and I would disagree with that on the breach because go back and think about story number one that we covered. A breach of 28,000 user account sets of data from one user's email account at SANS. I was going to say, within one email account, you can get a lot of data. In fact, I just, uh, so, I, I just so, want to point out so, that uh, uh, we're, we're talking about this in the context of research that was based on the report, which presents the results of external pen tests uh, of corporate information systems performed by one pen test company. Oh, right. So it to me, that's of, not it, not enough data set, uh, yeah. enough data to to state three out of four companies in the world can be breached by un 
skilled hackers. Yeah, and and, and that right. said, they didn't specifically call out the fact that uh, phishing may have been in scope or not, or well, they might have so, been the report, Larry. I, I was just trying to skim yeah, skim the actual uh, yeah. the actual report. Now, I'm not saying their data is invalid. So the graphic that they use, the the hackers are wearing hoodies, and that has to well, then give it's you a, be real world. A, a, a few points towards your skill measurement. Uh, I, I would argue <laughs> no, the clothing I, I, I that you're, you're like, wearing <laughs> or not wearing should should not matter. In this, case. I would say the, the well, majority it, it of speaks like to a, a certain level of skill, Paul. Right? It does. Superficial. Yeah, the corporation's maturity though matters a, a great deal, and the the type of pen test company you're utilizing based on the company's maturity. Like I would I would put uh, many of our companies up against you know some very very skilled people, and they would have a hard time. Like that's the goal of all of this. Otherwise, we're not doing our job. Unless they're saying I'm unskilled, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I, I think the problem, Tyler, is not that skilled pen, pen testers are not doing their job. I I think it's a it, it's more a matter of the majority of companies out there. It's a combination of a couple things. The majority of companies out there are not hiring skilled pen testers. They're hiring mm -hmm. whatever they can do to get the checkbox to get get done and get get beyond it they're not taking full advantage of the pen testing but i also and i don't know if this is more or less important the mentality within our industry that the only people that really know what's wrong with your network or can tell you what's wrong with your network is the pen testers while in many cases that's valid and it's certainly how i came into the commercial sector 25 years ago i would like to think that uh, you know, pen testing is much more of a, how well are you doing? Not, let me tell you everything that's wrong with you. Um, we may never get there. I should probably just shut up about it and just accept it. But I, I, I think, I think we, we pen tester hacker community put too much emphasis and assumption on this. It all begins and starts with the pen test and knowing what's really wrong and what's really go going on, because that kind of throws all the process and people in process, you know, out the out the window. And which pragmatically, I agree, is how most companies approach it. But it shouldn't be that way. I'll get off my soapbox. No, but also you have to define what a breach means. What is it? We just talked about the sans breach, true, right? True. And we said, yeah, yeah okay, yes, sans. In its classic sense, and the way we define breach was breached. But d does that mean that an unskilled hacker can breach an organization like Sands, and they're in that three out of four companies? I I, I don't know that I would draw those conclusions. I, I don't know that there's many definitive conclusions I can draw from reading this article and that and that study because I I think we need more more studies or and or data presented in a different light to define I, the I skill level with you. what means what it means to, for a breach and how you measure the effectiveness of a company's security program i think those are three different data points I agree we can debate with, I, all night long i agree with you philosophically i agree with you but when you look at some of the numbers and the percentages of things that fell with like the first attempt at doing some one thing and you know i i I, I would not be surprised if those numbers don't roughly coalesce over other pen testing companes. I think I, a lot I, of I pen agree. testing companies um, have similar experiences. And I'm drawing on an interview that we did with Doug Hubbard, 
that talks about which I have yet to listen to. Okay, which apparently uh, was mind altering, mind mind blowing. You know, but now on the flip side of kind of my arguments are, and one of the things that Doug uh, brings up and, and defends his point very well is that you don't need to have a completely comprehensive study with millions of different test subjects to draw conclusions from, right? And and Jeff, to your point, not and not again, not just taking this study. But all of the studies that I've read about the effectiveness of security programs versus penetration testing teams, right? I think we can mm-hmm. can draw conclusions that the majority of times a pen tester will get in. And largely, I don't believe in all the studies that I've read from very well-respected firms, to other firms that maybe I've never heard of, their data, if you were to study that data, my hypothesis would be that it doesn't take a very skilled attacker to breach the majority of companies out there. I think that this article kind of does this disservice by looking at this one study. I think if you were to look at Mm -hmm. the studies that were produced by Praetorian and several other companies out there, that you would come to the same conclusion. You just need to look at more studies in a slightly different light with some unbiased data and you would probably come to the conclusion same conclusion that that i would like to draw is that you don't need to be the world's greatest hacker to breach the majority of companies that are out there on the planet today right i think we can all agree on that and we also do the study insane right like the gap between really mature companies Mm -hmm. and doing really good security is becoming greater between the ones that are getting left behind and just checking the box right that gap is furthering and there's going to be more and more on either side of that fringe and so i think that has a lot to do with it as well there are today and and you have to watch the uh, in the context of this i highly recommend you go watch the webcast with with todd from rapid seven todd beautifully is awesome um and, and presents the facts from the data that he collected there are eight million or so medium to high level vulnerabilities that exist on the internet today those represent mm-hmm. about 4 million systems on the internet uh, today that have CVSS score, uh, I want to say of 8.5 or above, or there's some statistic about critical vulnerabilities that are largely remote code execution that are hanging out there today. And that's 4 right. million different systems, right? And then just think about the number of companies that might represent. You also presented data about which industries had the most critical vulnerabilities. Those were telecom, finance, and healthcare, uh, which, which is also data that can support that Yeah, it probably wouldn't take a very skilled attacker to uh, successfully breach a lot of the companies that are out there today, right? So I don't disagree with the finding, Jeff. I just disagree with mm-hmm. the methodology and, and the data. I think there's better data points that you can pull from to basically draw the same conclusion. Well, and I confess I haven't read the article to know what their conclusion was other than the splashy headline. Right. But uh, again, I agree with you, But I, I th- and I think I'm agreeing with you. It boils down to not maybe necessarily the testing metric and getting you know, more data points, uh, a, a bigger, a bigger test, test pool, but also what do you, what do you want to do with the data? You know, yep. it, it, you know, it, is it a, is it a, a reflection of the pen testing community or is it a reflection of the immaturity of more companies? Oh, completely to, agree, Jeff. Yes. Yeah. Right. You, okay. you have to define your hypothesis before you do the study. And I think right. a lot of these studies are just for like, 
hey, you should have a pen test. And you know what you should do I with, mean, with us? And I get, believe me, I get marketing and I get, I get all of that too, right? But I think right. it's more worthwhile to the community to form a very intelligent hypothesis and then seek to prove that, right? And it's something we learn about in, in grade school most of the time, right? In theory. And that could be, again, like you said, Jeff, I, multiple studies, right? Like, uh, how do you measure the skill level and how do you measure the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the, you know, security maturity uh, program, right? Or the maturity of the security program, right? So I, mm. those are two different data points to measure. So oh, right. the, the article's based on a report uh, from, uh, uh, what's it, something... Uh, Anyway, the report says this is a common, this is a correlation of 28 engagements we did in 2019. But at least they weren't doing a single test and then the result. Um, I don't know how broad a subset that is, but still kind of interesting. And I get that. And, and again, you know, and, and Doug uh, Hubbard talked about this, that, you know, you don't necessarily need a whole ton of data to, to prove a point, right? And right. he also pointed out that you can basically do a study which which is what i i, I really liked you yeah. can do a study of a bunch of other previous studies and use that to help draw a conclusion and this <laughs> study by i don't know what the the pen testing firm was uh you know who, we've been talking about them for a while and uh, maybe name them by name uh positive technologies right that's it their findings if I recall from memory the findings from other pen test firms that have done similar studies basically came to the same conclusion that, yeah. like, basically security sucks and pen tests are very successful, right? And so mm -hmm. given that, I, there's validity. Even though it was only 28 companies, if you start combining that with previous studies from uh, 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 Praetorian has done studies. Rapid7 has also done studies uh, on yeah. their pen tests, right? And other firms as well. They all draw basically very similar to these same conclusions. So even though it was only 28 from this one pen test company, it's in line with other studies that I've, that I've read uh, about this. So I think you could look at all of those and basically draw a much larger conclusion that yes, they're, they're we have a problem in security that people are insecure and attackers of maybe not a great deal of skill are able to breach these companies, right? This study on its own, the headline is very sensational, but I think there's a larger data set there that we can draw from to make those conclusions. Well, and to take it a, one smaller step even further, and, and you, you kind of went the same place where I was thinking, but I was thinking more of the Verizon report. Mm -hmm. Verizon has the Deeper report. Verizon has right. a PCI report. Uh, you know, breach report. Mm -hmm. It's still only one company and their customers, and right. that's got to be a, a biased sample. Intuitively, you think that, yet you do enough of these studies, and, yes. and if you've been in this business long enough, trust me, I walk into a new company and they start telling me about what they're doing, and you know, it's PCI focused, but almost before they start talking, I know where they're going and I know where their problems are and I know what the likely suspects are because everybody does the same things wrong. Everybody struggles with the same things that could make them more mature. Um, it, you know, and I'm not, not trying to be cynical or curmudgeon or anything, but very rarely do I see something new and original like, wow, I've never seen that, uh, you know, that kind of ineptitude before. Right. That's, I mean, that's we can even we can different. even take uh, Rapid7's data, 
uh, mm. and, and use it to validate the study, right? So 8.5 right. million high severity vulnerabilities across 54.5 million devices. That's just in the U.S. alone, right? Right. Um, there were 191,314 Windows slash Linux SMB servers exposed to the internet in the U.S. alone. Right. And, and, right. and so uh, that you could draw conclusions that that definitely validates this other study, right? Because having SMB exposed to the internet is really bad. Well, and and not that I'm trying to pick on my stories or anything, but to 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 dovetail my story number four, which I thought was again an interesting title: vulnerability prioritization. That's oh, like we're going to talk about that. The next time. shiny right. object. Are we getting it right? Mm. Well, and, you know that is, again is another uh, data analysis study that you mm. need to do in your own organization. Right, and there's yep. so many different ways to skin that. Uh, we'll talk about it in the next segment uh, in depth as well. Um, we will, and, and I'll be wearing the same shirt that I was. I wearing will not right now. I, I didn't plan <laughs> I accordingly. You didn't plan ahead. I didn't. <laughs> or but, behind, as the case may be. And, but you know, but what's really interesting, uh, uh, you know, about that prioritization is that there are three major companies and a whole bunch of other ones, right, that do vulnerability management. They try and help you prioritize. And there's such a need and a challenge with prioritization that there's whole a whole other sub-industry that has been created to help you prioritize those vulnerabilities. Um, and I find it refreshing that there are newer vendors that are trying to solve the problem more holistically rather than one vendor for this and then one vendor to prioritize and one vendor to patch and one vendor for protection and and one and so on and so forth right uh, and i think that's that's kind of refreshing that we're seeing uh a kind of consolidation of these things uh because they are becoming a little bit more commodity and not so much you know secret sauce right there's a way to analyze things collect vulnerabilities to do patching to do protection that can offer an acceptable level for organizations today uh which is interesting right mm -hmm. Um, I did want to talk about TeamViewer for a moment because uh, TeamViewer yeah. is essentially a backdoor, uh, a legitimate backdoor. I, I, it's kind of right, like it's, it's like a. I've been using it for a couple decades. Right, I mean, well. but it's, I mean, it's a commercial back office. I mean, let's let's be frank, right? Um, but it it has there's a lot of companies that use it. There are, and there's a, a backdoor that can give you the. Um, allow so let's see could be exploited by remote attackers to steal the system password right ntlm hash i mean right. ntlm v2 hash if we're being specific about it but yeah sure so i mean a few thousand bucks is, for a, a password cracking rig any, and... any piece of software yeah i mean any piece of software that has a file extension that has some sort of smb um kind of feature or set with inside of it like we seen this back uh it was a couple months ago i think with what was it sharepoint or exchange or something i mean zoom, that's kind of the zoom, point of zoom had zoom and skype have also had vulnerabilities where you can access oh that's what it was i think it was skype yeah yeah you send send a, a you know a an smb or a, a ur url that's um, URI, a, a uri with smb colon yeah. slash slash right and that's 
prevalent. It, there's been browser vulnerabilities in the past, Skype vulnerabilities, yeah, I mean, Zoom that's vulnerabilities. How, that's how SMB works, right? That's what it's designed to do. It tries to make that authentication. So the fact that they're doing this with TeamViewer is it's an interesting way to do it because it just has to be embedded in a website. <clears throat> so within like an yeah. iframe or something, which is kind of scary. Uh, and we were actually looking at this a couple years ago. Uh, the fact that it was as simple as it is, is, you know, but there are other pieces of software that do do this that have not been recorded on. So. Now, a tolerant question, not question for you and, and anyone else too. Um, <clears throat> I've spoken with a few companies, especially recently, right. That do this kind of whitelisting protection, you know, we spoke to Micah at Elastic about the memory protections. Can you essentially take a client like TeamViewer or Skype or Zoom or whatever it is and say, yeah, I know this functionality is in the app that they can access these URIs, but you know what? If this app tries that, I just want to block it and prevent it. And, and that's like a, it is kind of, I don't want to say whitelisting because it's not, but it's basically uh, wrapping, putting protections around the app that it can only do what it's intended to do but if it has this intended functionality of accessing uri i don't want to allow that for any of my users i tend tending to believe that this is a valid defense uh to help protect your users from applications exposing too much functionality and limiting that down to avenues that could be exploited right but that would probably slow us down as attackers right some of that, some of that though, is inherent into the operating system itself, right? Mm. The way in which applications, uh, you know, what the functionality that applications have, they is inherit a, from a the operating system. What DLLs yeah. or function libraries are bringing in, or even how the operating system and API calls are being handled, uh, as part of maybe another function that that has to be relied upon. Right. So. It gets kind of complicated, I think, and that's why it ends up being an issue is because it's easier to make it work than to drill down that deep. Yeah, yeah. I, I think protection that can do that well, uh, I have some more confidence in, in protecting bad things from happening within our applications. And, and that's kind of where I'm seeing the market go uh, in, in some newer newer firms that I'm, I'm talking to. Uh, what else we got? Can I double back on the prioritization? Yeah, because we, we kind of just we didn't One, talk about it much. Real quickly, I, I want to throw out there that the PCI data security standard sort of introduced the idea of prioritization. Nobody picked up on it. Nobody does it. As early as 2010 with the release of version 2, but uh, they 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 tweaked it, and when version three came out in 2013, they give you the opportunity as a company to say you determine what the risk is. Come up with a criteria for your you know for your own company based on whatever, and 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 then figure out how to you know categorize all the vulnerabilities that are discovered. They didn't call it prioritization. But they give you the opportunity to set your own rules, whereas most companies just defer to whatever the scan engine they use gives as their CVE score or CVSS score or whatever it is. Um, it, it, you know, every company hates to have to run down the 37 or whatever the number was you were using, 90 million vulnerabilities that are out there, and they've got to, you know, get them all remediated and patched within 30 days. I, I just want to throw out there 
you know, as a nod to PCI, that they introduced the idea of prioritization long before any of the companies that are this. You know, and I think the skin engine companies were the first ones to started doing it. You know, year and a half, two years ago, our 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 alma mater, Paul, was mm. I think one of the first. Um, and my first question to them was, are you letting the companies set it based on their prior criteria, or are you telling them what Tenable thinks is, is prioritization? And I have yet to meet a company that's doing prioritization for whatever reason that is letting the customer sort of, you know, set the controls and, 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 and tune it according to their needs which is the you know again i acknowledge that's the reality Everybody yeah and, just, no, and a lot of that did just, change i think for a long time jeff the companies were not allowing uh their customers to recast the risk score mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. changed because we were able to find so many vulnerabilities because the scanning engines got better and our attack surface got much larger therefore we granted that capability to customers across the board from several different you know all products to say you can basically customize the score. How, however, yep. that has bred very concerning things for me as a security professional. In fact, Todd and I and, and Matt talked about this on the webcast because there were in the U.S. Uh, 7.6 million medium level, and I believe mm -hmm. Todd defined this as a 4.1. It's to four, a, right to a 7.9 7. or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Just shy of eight, uh, but yep. above a four is considered medium. And to me, and, and, and Todd largely did, agreed with my you know, assessment as well, that we draw the same conclusions in that those are the juicy ones for attackers because, because it's not critical, it means people maybe aren't likely to pay as much attention to it, right? It's not low right. where I got to work really hard to get anything out of it, right? Medium right. is that sweet spot where people aren't paying attention to it as much and patching it as quickly, but it gives you a lot more than a low... Uh, so less than a 4.0 on the CVSS scale and depending on what version, right? Right. And therefore, that's a, a really significant risk to the organization. And I've demonstrated in previous webinars uh, fairly recently that you can, the mediums tend to be, and what I love is like web application vulnerabilities, right? They give you a foothold that you can definitely go to the next vulnerability that might be another medium, and get shell access. So like two mediums mm. are a critical, but no yeah. one's patching the, not no one, but you're not as inclined to pay attention to and patch those mediums because it's not critical, right? And, and, and mm -hmm. what, what do we, how do we define critical? I mean, we've talked about this concept from low to pwned, I think was a, yeah. a Chris Gates yep. thing from back in the day, right? And mm -hmm. when I was working at Tenable, I would evangelize this at, as their product evangelist. I would evangelize this and go, you can't just ignore things based on a score that's scoring the vulnerability itself. You have to contextualize it. And Absolutely. I think that's what bred that whole sub uh, category in vulnerability management of helping you prioritize it, right? I also think right. that's what, you know, Larry and Tyler are really, you know, squirming in their seats right now because that's what they do as pen testers, right? You string together a couple of mediums to get to your end goal. Because they, maybe they patch the criticals and the lows aren't enough to really do much with. The lows may give you some information to help you exploit those two mediums, basically. Right. I, I remember there was a time when, we, when I actually had enough time to start going after patching the mediums. God, it's got to be at least 15 years ago. Now it's 
hard enough. You have to run to keep up with the highs and the criticals. Um, so it, and, yeah, and that's I'm where I'll, sure. I'll argue all day long with people that are against automation. Because in order to get there today, Lee, to your point, you got to have some automation, right? You just you have to be really good at patching, and really good at patching doesn't mean you're just patching their criticals. Really good at patching no. is you're patching a good you're patching all the criticals in a good percentage of mediums in mm -hmm. less than thirty or sixty days based on their release, right? And even well, still, that's hard. I even like to see faster. I like to see a hard stance on less than thirty days. We're patching all that stuff, but you know, Todd also presented metrics on the Citrix remote code execution vulnerability. And he's like, you know, there was like 10% that patched in the the first couple of weeks. And then it was a slow kind of rise from there because it's still hard to patch stuff. And I'm like, if we don't nail this automation piece to really be able to patch our infrastructure, we're screwed. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not, I am one of those ones that is not a fan of automation, but it's, it's not, it, it's it is to some degree the way that you describe it and you're opposed to it. But I acknowledge that automation is necessary. What I object to is, uh, in in my experience, the, the, the companies that rely on automation and that's all they do. Yeah. There, no. is, there is no, you know, special attention or right. manual intervention. Automation is a tool. It, it's that. a tool in your arsenal. It's a tool. Yeah. Yes. It's not... It's not the be-all, end-all, but our industry, unfortunately, and, and you know, we could point fingers at, at probably a hundred companies, you know, sort of sell the automation as you know, set it and forget it, mm. even even to this day. Or there's no way you can possibly keep up. Let us do it for you, and and, and you know, that's a variation on a theme. But that that's the side of automation that I object to. Not. Yeah, it's 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 great to use automation. There's no way to scale manual processes for the amount of data that's flowing in your network these days. You've got to use automation, but you yeah. also have to still do something manual at the end of the day. And, and you're to, exactly right, to, Jeff. Like, where in the scale do you fall? Like, I'm right. not going to use automation at all. Versus, I just want to automate everything and not and not do anything. Right. The answer is somewhere in between, but there's a lot of variance there, which is where yeah. I think we should be in the kind of points of contention, right? I don't want the points right. of contention to be no automation versus complete automation. Cause in no, either right. case, that's the wrong approach. The approach is right. somewhere in between and where in between do we fall? It's a hybrid. Yeah. It's a hybrid. Cloud I agree. Yeah. Of security, hybrid cloud, hybrid, <laughs> autom hybrid automation, hybrid right. security. Well, I mean, you can, you can do it. You can do a crap load of work with automation and get rid of, I mean, You've also got to categorize. You've got systems that you're just, you know, going to push all the patches on it because it doesn't matter. If it goes wrong, you're just going to re-image it to the other end of the scale where if you breathe on it sideways and it falls over, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And somewhere in the middle of your business systems, and you can't automate some of that. So we're at least able to knock off the low-hanging fruit and some of the higher fruit. But it seems like some of the things that come up are um, What's interestingly, much more it, complicated. And it's interesting what you said is that I think if you have automation that frees up your time enough to do projects that make your infrastructure not fragile enough so that when you breathe on it, it falls over and then enables yeah. you to put it in that automation category, those are the projects we should be working on, right? Because we shouldn't have stuff in our 
you know, enterprises today or businesses today that when you breathe on it, it falls over. And we all know where those systems are, right? We want to make those systems more resilient so we can reach some level of automation getting patches to them. But it's hard to get there if you're not automating the boring stuff, right? Well, there's also a class of systems that you won't be able to make that. Like PLCs will fall over if you send them a malformed packet, but you isolate those. You don't put them out on your on the internet or your or your main backbone you hope you isolate those although with the israeli systems that were running the water system that had 4g connections they weren't necessarily isolated which has been my example lately of where isolation is absent and has gone wrong but also speaks to the maintenance of those so like isolation and maintenance are in two completely separate disparate camps right Yes. Yeah. I'll say it now, Paul, and I'll, and I'll, you know, we can talk about it later offline, but I, I had this idea that's probably best suited for a webinar for us. But, you know, I had this thought in the last day or two. Um, we, we talk very often about the maturity of security organizations and the need to, you know, attain a certain level of maturity before certain things kick in before you can take full advantage of a lot of the things that we talk about what what i'm curious and interested in maybe putting together a webinar about is okay so you're not a mature organization how do you become mature mm. what you know what are the what you know what are the the first you know prioritized approach the five to, steps to being a security maturity becoming yeah or secure. even just starting down that road you yeah. know is it just go out and buy a bunch of technology probably mm, probably not, not. It, is it going and getting a bunch of certs probably, probably not, not. It, you know is it go out and hiring people that you can't afford and you don't know what they're doing anyway probably not but you know what okay we're an immature organization but we want to do the right thing what do we do I think that would be an interesting webinar to do. And, and I think if we focus that on process, right? Yes. Because yes, tools, tools and people can come later, but defining yep. the processes, the top five processes that you should have in place, right? Then maybe following up with, here's the kind of people you might want, here's the kind of tools you might want, how you tie those together yep. to implement those four processes or five processes, right? But defining what those five processes are would be really interesting. Yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned process and I have a slide deck from about 22 years ago that we could probably use to, to, you know, spur the conversation. Cause I don't think it's changed, especially from a process perspective. No, how, I, I, how you do security at a process level has not changed from day one. Completely agree. I too have slides that are probably 20 years old that talk about process over anything else and largely yeah, the only right. problem is 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 being able to get you know the the modern version of powerpoint to actually load them yeah <laughs> that's another problem <laughs> so it's okay jeff you probably have a printed copy and we could probably recreate them from that printed copy i got a, like or a I... really old keynote presentation that won't load in anything anymore <laughs> oh. oh my goodness <laughs> so i was telling i was telling lee about this box that I discovered um, in our basement of th- stuff that I thought was lost or stolen, and in it was a bunch of stuff like this. Yes. Oh. Does that have the garbage file on it? It might. It might. It looks oh, like it, the, the same might, color diskette from. Disc. We got one in the studio too, though the, the uh, yellow well, floppy from hackers, which I still maintain that 
all of us being friends, we should know that that place where I hid that thing one time, and we should just know what that is. <laughs> yeah, the body. <laughs> it could be a body. It could be a well. Back then, it was a floppy disk. Now it might be a micro SD card. But you know, I didn't post that as as a story. Speaking of floppies, but who was it? Uh, I just posted the story. Somebody, somebody, some government agency is still using. Oh, it was Boeing? Not government. It was Boeing. Mm. Is is still using three and a half? In, I should. Gra- I'll, I'll add that story to my stories uh, after the show. But uh, I just posted it on Twitter, and and I and I uh, tagged Sec Evangelism Chris Quebeca because she's you know been going after Boeing the last couple months. Um, but they were. You know, there was a big news story that they're using three and a half, three and a half inch floppies to to push patches and updates out to their planes. That was the up, that was the update for the seven forty seven four hundred. Yep. Good, bad, indifferent. Better well, than a um, five and a quarter inch. But and a, after that, was it a ten inch? No, it was a nine inch. Eight inch. We had a funny segment on the show years ago about. Three and a half inch, five and a quarter inch, and then it was eight eight inch floppy. Is the one after that? Mm-hmm. And then, eight inches and floppy. <laughs> and, <laughs> but then before well, that, it was like real the real like a, a tape, like a physical the tape. nine track tape. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and somewhere there was uh, punch tape. And then before the punch, those two. Well, ticker and punch. punch there was tickers and then punch cards. Right. There was a ticker tape right. too. But I mean, you know, the the, the nuclear launch codes uh, up until just the last year or so, they finally came out and said they're updating it. That they've been they've been going, and that's I think what was the impetus for the the time in the last couple of years where we've talked about eight inch floppies. The nuclear launch codes were still going out on eight inch floppies. I thought that was all automated with the Whopper. Well, I was going to bring that up a little bit earlier. You know, the lessons learned from you know totally relying on automation. And right. that goes yes. back to war games. It did that. War games did absolutely address that exact issue, Jeff. You're absolutely correct. Nin- Nineteen eighty-three. Yes. <laughs> anyway, probably back when you were at NSA when the Reagan administration, during the Reagan uh, administration, little, right? Well, a little bit before I started in eighty-six. But yeah. War games was uh, sneakers came out while I was at NSA. Go. And doing the red teaming thing, so that was that was so cool. Uh, any other stories? What else we got, Tyler? What do you got? Man, that cell phone one was really interesting. The Revolt LTE one. Yes. That Is that one, uh, uh, seven thousand dollars worth of equipment can eavesdrop on cell phones? Was the kind of yeah. sensational. It looked a little sensational, but reading through some of the the way in which they're doing it with like a software-defined radio and how the it has to do with the the cryptography and the way the headers get handed off because everything uses um, data LTE, so you're basically mm-hmm. having that RTP stream. And if you're within range, if you've got the the software-defined radio set up, and you've got the ability to capture the header files that initiate the call in plain text you can then make a audio out of that if i remember right and is, uh, does I that still rely on um, really... an mc catcher to get the initial yeah. handshake uh so essentially it's it's like using that except they're just doing it with the software defined radio and then they're using the cryptological flaw gotcha with inside of 
LTE so they're, to do they're not that. trying to man in the middle. They're sniffing, essentially. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. sniffing the RTP stream. Yep. So sniffing, it was very and, interesting. Uh, uh, re- effectively recovering the symmetric shared keys to be able to decrypt it. Mm. Yep. And that's so. the part that's reliant on the plain text. Uh, I mean, so, I, I, I've always felt a slight increase in security when using, you know, 4G uh, technology for Internet and or, you know, cellular communications, just making calls. A slight I think versus does, right? Wi-Fi, right, versus going over the Internet. I felt a slight advantage. But knowing, I want to say it was ShmooCon, like, pre-2010 when I started seeing some of the initial research. And there was even research before that. Uh, that was doing things like MZ catchers and, and intercepting the, the technology. Uh, so this didn't seem like anything necessarily new in concept, right? Just a newer application of the Just stuff we've been talking about. And a cheap, yeah, and the costs have come down. Much like Wi-Fi, where we saw the costs come down dramatically in a very short period of time, right? Like original 802.11b gear, right, Larry, I want to say... Yeah. Back in the earlier 2000s-ish, maybe even pre-2005 before we started the show, like it was still kind of expensive to be able to intercept yeah. Wi-Fi 802.11 traffic, right? But then... Yep. I mean, I mean, heck, the cards just to be able to do like those Orinoco Silver cards yeah. that would do uh, 64 or 40-bit WAP, those were Ooh. like $265. And if you wanted to do the 128 or 104-bit WAP, Yep. Uh, with the Orinoco gold cards, those were like 350 bucks. And I remember buying I a, a show, specific so. Cisco, uh, I think it was, I, I don't remember which, the PCMCIA. Yeah, the, the 350, the Cisco mm-hmm. 350 card. Mm-hmm. It was named 350 because it cost $350. Right. And I remember, because that was like, in order to do one of the techs to get monitor mode and packet injection, that's the card you had to have. Right. And even before that, it was slightly more expensive, but dramatic decrease in the cost, right? Uh, and especially has been a constant over time. I feel like with uh, LTE, 4G, the cost is still much higher, but still going down in terms of being able to intercept. Yeah, but There's still a lot of security, through security there, too. Yeah. No, yeah. I was just saying that from a cellular provider standpoint, like the technology is, it's a little bit more complicated. There's not as many people that understand the back end workings of, of all the, you know, S7 data and how those uh, protocols are all being handled uh, provider to provider even. Mm. Uh, and that makes a big difference in pretty much everything you do. Interesting. So yeah, the call being handed off from provider to provider is still relying on S7. It's like an old POTS telephone system kind of stuff, right? right? Pots. Pots. Pots? Pop quiz. Yeah. What does pots stand for? Plain old, Plain old telephone, telephone, system. System. telephone system. Yeah. How about PSTN instead, if you prefer? Publicly switched Provider telephone network. Provider signal trans. Tyler sounded better, though. <laughs> I don't know which <laughs> one was more accurate, but Tyler <laughs> sounded way better. My waiters on after that one because it was pretty deep. <laughs> Uh, but yes. I at least got it. Come on now. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is having conversations with um, the network team about what kind of uh, connections we're using when reaching to our video teleconferencing systems. When you're talking to those guys, they'll talk about when is it going to the PSTN system versus uh, over this or that. You have to know what the acronyms mean, but yes. you can't use those acronyms with end users. They'll, they, they check out. Yeah, I have it, no idea because it goes back to 
basically VoIP and telephone switching technology, right? Who who remembers having to dial nine before one before making a long distance phone call? Uh-huh. Yeah, we had enough issues. We had to change it from nine to eight on our Fair phone enough. system. We yeah, at, at, at the lab, we had our own five E. Twenty-four million dollar phones. What was that called? It was like watts or something like that. Oh, the watts lines. I remember those. Watts lines. Yeah. But it's cool. interesting. We uh, in early days, I feel like we were. If you're old enough, you were involved with not just the security of computer systems and the even Ethernet, but even before Ethernet, the networking part. But the phone technology also kind of fell in your purview of maybe you didn't run those systems, but you had to provide. Uh, security kind of consulting to the long distance charges are no joke, man. Yeah, to the <laughs> telephone system. I mean, I remember working for the university, we had our own telephone switching system for the university, uh, and we would consult, you know, with them. And they were like a dotted line into the networking uh group, basically. Uh, and I would actually work with them and and had not a whole lot of conversations, but sometimes have conversations about because there were still modems connected and it tied into. I feel like that's yeah. not true today. Most things are VoIP and going over the internet. Right. Probably yeah. most people don't know what it's like to what it means keep, to busy keep, automotive. Keep mm. thinking that, Paul. Right. Yeah. So there's probably still a lot of that technology around today. Yep. Well, I'm wondering how many of our listeners know what it means to take the phone off the hook. Right, but to Jeff's well, point, still, still. Uh, so when next time uh, we've got folks back here in studio, I'm thinking it's 2021. Realistically speaking, uh, yeah. I do have a, a local uh, connection, pun intended, um, that is willing to take us on a tour of uh, telephone network switching. Play. I won't say which company, but I've got an in, and I'm like, can we take a tour? He's like, yeah, absolutely. He's like you know about that stuff i'm like yeah those hackers kind of like that's where we got our start right <laughs> the term <laughs> hacker originates from hacking phone systems like oh i'd love to give you guys a tour it's awesome like he was just like cool. impressed that there was actually people out there that knew you know what this technology was right yeah when do we go the next time you guys yeah. are up next time you guys are, are, are here we'll we'll make it uh, happen are we gonna have johnny uh recording it live if we have permission absolutely absolutely awesome yeah awesome that would be fun. You know, I used to work for the phone company. Is that when you worked at NSA, Jim? Is that? That's because... Oh no, wait. <laughs> no, a, a different three-letter agency, AT and T. Yep. The so phone he, company. Yeah, I was going to say he had one of those things on his head, very similar to what he's got now—the head, the switchboard operator—and mm-hmm. he would do the yep. plug from one to the other. Yes, that's old school. Tor exit nodes is an interesting one as well, if we're looking for something. Uh, so a, interesting, uh, back to my university days is another example. We had one of the largest Tor exit nodes on our network at the university. Before, <laughs> I remember like, you calling me that day. Right? Before people really knew like what Tor was and Tor exit nodes were, I was like, I had this event. And Larry, I probably did yep. call Larry and was like, dude, have you heard of this before? What is going on? And... But what I and Larry, I think years ago, uh, based on an incident, we basically came to the same conclusion that I think my story number 10 is talking about that the anonymity and security of Tor is largely dependent on who's controlling your exit node. Exit node, yep. 
And we did speculate at the time. We didn't present any evidence. But the wonderful thing about this podcast is we get to speculate that um, evil people who are not affiliated with any government could control an exit node or your government or someone else's government could also control an exit node. Therefore, the anonymity of Tor is solely really based on who controls the exit nodes. And while that the, the beauty of Tor is that it is an onion network and that it would be difficult for anyone to control all the nodes, right? And you would get a portion of that traffic. Tyler, is that kind of where you were going? Yeah, correct well? me if I'm wrong here, though. And the the only the only thing that having an exit node provides you is the IP address of traffic leaving. The whole point of the Onion protocol is to strip back the layers and no one knows if the next hop is the last hop where the data then right. is Correct. stripped down from the client. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. if you consider having visibility across multiple nodes or a good portion of those nodes... Or the master nodes, Tyler, aren't, aren't there... Sorry, leaving. Tyler, aren't there different levels of nodes as well? Or there was back in the day. I don't know if the protocols have evolved. Yeah, there, there's different levels, and then there's different trust levels of, of nodes, and you can specify nodes that you want to use or not use, mm. and that you know also has a trust level or factor. And then the visibility in which those nodes are logging or not logging is based on your trust level. But really, I don't think there's anything being seen as far as the traffic goes. That's because that's how the Onion protocol works. However, you can make some inferences on, hey, this IP came into this node and exited this node if you have enough visibility over top of all those nodes and can do some very uh, good layer two and layer three analytics Mm. uh, very quickly, then, yeah, you can infer, hey, this is the real IP. It's coming out of this IP. Now you know where they're going or what they stood up and where they came from, and that allows you to then do further tracking if you've got other data sets and other information around that. Mm. So really it's just just control. You just need to control and be able to aggregate data from enough, from uh, you know, enough exit nodes enough. and enough relay nodes to be able to effectively reconstruct those multiple layers of onions. Uh, and and based on what I'm seeing in this article, you know, conceivably possible, given that they're saying they controlled 380 exit nodes, and this is just where the traffic ends up on the back of the general internet. Now, if they can control 380 exit nodes, what's keeping them from populating enough relay nodes in there and being able to? aggregate that data mm. but but what they were doing was you know ssl stripping the H- HTTPS downgrade attacks so you can you can put some plugins in your browser to stop that gotcha um, yep yep sorry tyler no yeah so that i mean that that provides you another layer of visibility that you can then use to do other inferences and aggregate more data based on the header so where the data is going what kind of uh, packets are in there, what protocol it's using. So there's some additional info you can get by doing that stripping. But I I think if that's all they're using to determine this, then yeah, there's a substantial amount more Tor exit nodes being leveraged for other aggregate data analysis. And, and I'd argue that that data is just the data coming out of those exit nodes. Like, what would I use a Tor exit node for if I'm looking to maybe exfiltrate some data? Uh, maybe I've got you know, a million... Uh, usernames and passwords that have been able to uh, exfiltrate, and I'm sending those somewhere, and I don't want it to be traced. Well, someone in possession of an exit node in which that is passing through, they potentially get that data and could use it for their own purposes before I ever release it, or or something of the like. So, in this case, they were tra- trying to capture Bitcoin transactions and redirect them. Mm-hmm. And as the exit nodes got reported, it went from 23% down to like they're under 10%. They're 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 finding and getting rid of them. 
but still crazy stuff uh, uh, I did Paul, I remember I remember you telling me the story about your tour exit node and you asking me hey have you heard of this tour thing and I'm like no, only a little bit so you explained it and there was a group that was standing up a tour exit node for research mm -hmm. so they could see what type of traffic was coming out of it and what it was being used what? for and you called me and you're like yeah dude my bandwidth just went away and like, like literally went away and you, i tell you what at the time it was not an insignificant amount of bandwidth oh, no, at all no like at, you know i i'm i'm thinking back like at the time it was early 2000s um and your organization probably had one or two gigs to the internet yeah yeah, because we were in the central, basically the central pop for internet and internet too. Like two. there was a ton of traffic coming through our data center for a whole lot of reasons. Which next time we're in a physical conference over beers, talk about it more, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. And, significant. And I, and I remember you saying that all of that bandwidth went away. Yep. And when you dug into it some more, it found out that uh, you, the single largest Tor exit node on the planet lived on your network. Yes. Because when they created it, they allowed every protocol through. That's And that's what I was getting at was that there are uh, like filtering and rules you can put as to how much bandwidth, how many different protocols can go through. And they basically had opened it all up to say, yeah, yeah. everyone can route through our node with no restriction. And we were funneling enormous amounts of traffic. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to just touch on this article quickly about... Um, if your email is hacked, everything is. And I've, I've always felt this way. And I think that so many stories we've covered over the years really comes down to the importance of your email account, right? And this, this could be, uh, you know, us as security professionals, we have a number of different email accounts and protect them in various ways for obvious reasons, because whether you're an enterprise user or a home user, your email, if someone gets a hold of that, will be abused and, and just pivoted off in so many different ways. And if you're going to put protections around any uh, given account, your email is absolutely one of them. And we've seen this trend in email providers in providing those extra protections in locking down password resets, in offering two-factor authentication, primarily pro offered in the email services because once someone gets control of your email, you can pivot and basically take over that person's life, right? And, that, and that's basically what this article is reminding us of, which I think as we uh, educate our clients and friends and family about the protecting your personal data, one of the first places to turn to is, look, make sure you've got a unique password in your email, make sure you got two-factor authentication, make sure you've enabled all the protections that are available. Google, I believe, has done a great job. Um, and they've pivoted this into their product uh, in their latest version of reCAPTCHA, uh, which is not the reCAPTCHA that we uh, know and mostly hate, um, but is automated bot detection, right? Uh, they've taken what's working for Google properties and made that a, as a commercial offering, and, and they're a sponsor and just disclosing that. However, you've noticed that if you log into your Gmail account, even your Hotmail account and other email accounts now, when you log into those from a different IP, it goes, yeah, you need to give me something more. Like, I need to text your phone. I need to ask for some two-factor. It sets off alarms. You get an email. Someone logged into your Gmail address from someplace weird, right? So they've, they've recognized this. 
that email is really the one of a, a very critical service for this everyone. Is, yeah, this is going to get worse though, too, right? Like if we oh, this we is something I've been working on for a while, right? Like SaaS and single sign-on. Mm-hmm. Like this is the two-headed dragon here that people don't realize if they don't have two-factor set up or if their email is compromised. Where's your two-factor going to? Where's your password reset? How do you log into Slack? Yep. Uh, anything that's associated with single sign-on or has a SAML token, like once you have that email, uh, it's all game over. Like if I get access to your Slack, then I can search. If I get access to your GitHub and it's on single sign-on, then I've got oh, access to your yep. Jira tickets. It goes downhill from there. Yep. Yeah. So, Paul, one of the, one of the things I'm noticing, and you talk about specifically about the the Google doing a great job of that. I. For someone who traveled a lot, mm. um, I would argue that they did a really good job. Like they could tell when I was coming from my home network because yep. I was coming from a specific service provider and from which device. And, and from and your so IP forth. or but, an IP range that you would normally come from, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, or or a, a specific service provider and those types of things. Then they started the uh, the cellular provider started introducing IPv6, mm-hmm. and then that was a shit show. Uh, because every time I switched over to a cellular, it was, you're coming from a different IPv6 address. You're in the United States, and they couldn't geolocate it. Give me your two-factor. So, yeah, so uh, give me your two-factor. Or we'll just say plain blocked, you know, you can't log in, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I started getting around some of those things by, you, you connect your home, your your phone to the VPN yep. that comes out of my home address, and it would work great. Uh, and then it would only happen that when I would travel. Mm. So home and local areas, you know, within the state of Rhode Island, um, it knew I was coming from these locations through like AI and machine learning and that type of stuff. It knew that that was good. The problem is now that I leave so home so infrequently mm-hmm. that going down the street and switching to the cellular network to go to the dump to take the trash triggers the account blocks. Right. Because I'm always coming from home now. Yeah. You've trained the AI very well to say that you're not going to leave your house, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, we're the AI. Mm. Well, that's one of the that's one of the frustrating things about security is the things that we, you know, the security designers they come up with all these great clever ways of of providing good security. But it's inconvenient and awkward and, and and makes life more difficult. So we find ways to avoid and circ- circumvent them. And, right. and that's that's not a new, you know, that that's goes back hundreds of years. Well, Tyler and I ran into this uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, right? We're trying to help someone out. And they were like, I trust you. Like, here's my email account. Like, just help me, right? And I'm like... Tyler, can, can you help me help this person? And Tyler, of course, being the awesome person, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I have access to our email. And like, no one was in the right place at the right time to get the two-factor to their phone. To And I was going to relay the message to Tyler to allow Tyler hmm. to log in. So like, now it becomes a difficult thing to get help, right, Tyler? Like to help someone, you almost, you not just need their username and password, you need their phone too to be able to actually help them uh, if they're in a really tricky spot and they're trying to get out of it, which happens now because there's data breaches and like this article saying, people take control of your email or your social media accounts and bad things happen. Yeah, it's it's interesting what it takes to get logged into email on a, a computer that has not been seen or used. Like right. regardless of AI and like geolocation, like even if your browser's never been seen or you're coming from 
a unique uh, device ID, which they leverage some of those advertising IDs in the browser. Yep. Uh, that throws a flag in. That second factor saves, I think, saves a lot of people. Honestly, it does. I think we have does. a lot more breach data, a lot more personal information out there if we didn't have those kind of things. Yeah, it's not it's not the best method, but it's better than not having anything. And I wish people would just find an easy way to get two-factor up and going. <laughs> yeah. I'd Great. say it's a lot better than not doing anything, mm. all things considered. Well, cool. Changed my mind. Yeah. Uh, any but, other, but, uh, anything else we want to talk about? No, let's call it a day. Well, uh, that will conclude the news portion. Make sure you stay tuned for our pre-recorded interview uh, with Michael from Vicarious. Certainly uh, worth a listen. Michael has awesome uh, thoughts on vulnerability prioritization uh, and remediation. Stay tuned for that. <laughs>